Robert Farron, Ribordo Farachoin, who died recently, was poet, playwright, author and broadcaster. And, of course, he was the first controller of radio programmes in Radio Erin. He was founder of the Lyric Theatre and of the Dublin Verse-Speaking Society and for many years was a director of the Abbey Theatre. He was born in Dublin, the son of a stonemason. Both his father and uncle were deeply involved in the trade union movement and were friends of Big Jim Larkin. His first vocation was for teaching, and he was prepared for that profession in St. Patrick's Training College, Drumcondra, where he had as contemporaries such distinguished people as Francis McManus, Brian McMahon, Liam McGowan and Seamus Kavanagh. Most of his teaching career was spent in Haddington Road, but his first post was in Rialto National School. One of his pupils there was Dermot Doolan, Group Secretary of Irish Actors' Equity, whose father was principal of the school. In school, he would uh, read us poetry, and uh, he also uh, would read his own poetry to us. So we always had to be very careful that when he asked us whether we liked it or not, we would all be gauging whether it was his own poem <laughs> or someone else's. So uh, sometimes we'd hit on the fact that it was his own and we'd praise it to the skies, but sometimes we'd be wrong and that would be unpleasant. Little devils. Then. Uh, and at the time, I always remember uh, when uh, G.K. Chesterton was indeed one of his great, uh, 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 he was a great admirer of yes, Chesterton yes. and uh, he, I, he must have been one of the, the best authorities on Chesterton because when Chesterton died I always remember he wrote a poem that started off Chesterton is dead that is the saying say and I, I always remember it and he was a very he was, he was very well thought of as a poet at that time mm. and the third programme in, in the BBC um, uh, did actually list him as among the up-and-coming poets at, uh, around that, that time. time. Mm. So that it was a, a natural that uh, he would get out of teaching, because teaching, I mean, I know from my father and from Robert, teaching is a horrible job, you know, mm. and uh, uh, you have to put up with monsters like us. <laughs> uh, because I was in, in his class when, we, when he went on his honeymoon, and we had a great buzz off for about two weeks <laughs> when he went off, and it was marvellous, actually. And uh, later I met Maureen, you know, and... and was telling her this, but uh, uh, for that time, obviously, uh, for, for the year after that, we had a great time because he was happily married and all. And we'd <laughs> but there were some great stories in the in the school actually, and uh, my father being the being the head man, you see, had to keep the 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 timing book, you see, mm. and Robert was never on time. You see, he used to cycle. Uh, uh, the windswept circular road down to Riata School, you know, and you can you can picture him now, uh, a, a man of learning and and, and discernment and, mm. and got, wanting to be a writer, you know, yes. having to face these horrible smelly kids, you know, every day, and um, he used to to ride the bike past the parish priest's house, Canon Deasy, who was a very stern and, and 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 austere figure, you know, he was the manager of the school, you see, and. Um, uh, Robert would, would ride past, you see, late in the morning, and then the cannon would see him from the window <laughs> and hair up to the school immediately to find that Robert had signed it on time, you see, because my father had the book and they'd hold it for him. <laughs> so one day uh, the cannon said, That man is always late, you see. 
So my father said, oh, it's all right, I'll speak to him, you see. And he, he, he met Robert then and he said, listen, he said, uh, Bobby, I wonder when you're coming in school again, will you go to the canal end? Because that's the back, he won't see you then. <laughs> good arrangement. A good arrangement. <laughs> By the end of the first hour, I am roaring and flaming like a house painter's blow lamp, striving to burn stupidity. Like faded paint from woodwork, drudging, drudging, saying it over, saying it over, saying it over. The soul of teaching is repetition, it was said urbanely, and we scribbled it down half-bored in the teacher's college. Revision, repetition and recapitulation, the indispensables of sound instruction, it was said urbanely. He did not tell us, the man who had everything noted, everything systematised, that it was torment. He failed to say it was raindrop, 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 beating and beating and beating on the forehead. He spoke of the backward child. He did not warn us. Minds could hide below rocks, unblastable boulders, which detonating dynamite of purpose could leave unscratched with the midge intelligence skulking there out of the daylight. I've set the road drill, the drill of my exasperated purpose, to bore through thick-ribbed concrete of stupidity and found that dullness beat me. I remember rage-filling head with hot blood and, God preserve us, ecstasy spring from anger so that a cringing, fear-stricken boy became a joy spring. Therefore, I have run shuddering from the chalk dust. I have shunned danger of my debasement. There is not, in any lay mind soever, any conception. There is not a beginning, a spark, a glimmering. There is not a shadow of remote understanding of the torture of the bone-grinding agony which is called in the textbooks of education and in prim annual sermons, this grand profession, this second priesthood, teaching. Quite evident in that poem, School Teacher by Ribaldo Farahoin, is his growing frustration with the repetitiousness of the work of the teacher. So he sought greater fulfilment for his many talents in the more exciting and challenging medium of radio. Leon O'Brien, who later became Secretary of the Department of Posts and Telegraphs, was a member of the board that interviewed and appointed the young Robert Farron as talks officer to Radio Erin in 1939. That was the Civil Service Commission Board. And we were bringing him, him Robert O'Farron, into the Civil Service, I say, into, I suppose, into the Department of Posts and Telegraphs. Uh, which had this broadcasting section. And he was to be a talks officer. I think that was the type, that yes. was the thing. My, as I was saying to you a little earlier when we were talking about this, my recollection is not clear at all about the sort of uh, people he had to stand up against, so far I can't. Mm -hmm. the, the, but 
I noticed from some time ago from Morris Scullin's book on broadcasting that he that he said that there was a, a big entry of applicants for the job, and I can well imagine that was true. Yes, yes. yes. But uh, I remember him coming before us. He had, by the way, he had got a degree from university, two university college, Cork, maybe a national university degree. Uh, for a short, rather very, rather speedily, he had a, he had fallen under the influence very much of Dr. James, the, yes. ca the cap a Capuchin, who was a very considerable philosopher at that time, wrote lots of books and things. And he did a book, I think, what it was about now, I'm not too sure. The Mystic Philosophy, I think. Uh, well, it was, it's really, it, was, it was in the in the area of Thomism, all right, but I think it was Thomism in relation to the arts or something yes. like that. Yes. And he, he did a thesis on this, and he got an MAA degree, which, of course, that was, uh, I think, most of the candidates would have had to have had some university background, and this mm. was what he presented, in my recollection, is to the board, that he was now an MA of yes. a national university. Yes. With the, the having done a thesis in uh, in Thomism mm. in relation to the arts, something like that. Well, he obviously he impressed you, anyway. Well, he was very, he was very impressed for a young man. He was he was a very impressive young fellow, you know. First of all, as you all know, who knew him, who he he was able to express himself. He had a gift of expression. He wrote very well, mm. and he spoke pretty well as he wrote. Well, in general, did you think that Rebord had a, a, a large contribution to make and that he made it? Oh, I think so. I think there's no doubt at all about that. He was, uh, he was a very considerable addition to the place, a very considerable addition to the place. He, uh, he became ultimately the controller of programmes, didn't he? Yes. yes. And uh, he, had, he, had, uh, he, had, he had a flair. Things he moved, he moved around a lot among people. He would have been his mind would have been open to all sorts of ideas for programs and whatnot, and he did find inspiration inside himself too for many a thing. Yes. Oh, I think he was a considerable figure. On his appointment, he showed himself to be a man of great innovation, being a poet and a great lover of books. It was natural that he should reflect these interests in programs. So he introduced regular series of poetry readings and book reviews. I started regular weekly book reviews on Radio Aaron, and booksellers told me the reviews increased their sales. By the way, starting weekly book reviews in Ireland is not as easy as it sounds, because you have to get publishers to send you the books continuously, and the publishers are mostly British. When I was getting my supply of books on request, the excellent literary editor of the Irish press at the time had to buy books to make a book page. Yes, buy books. I succeeded because I told the publishers three things. That the, book, the books I asked for would certainly be reviewed. That each reviewer would be an expert in the particular book's area and that I would send the publishers copies of the reviews. Soon the books were coming without being asked for and they still come. This is an example, first, of the power of broadcasting. Even though at the time, the 40s, the war years, Radio Ern was sadly handicapped by, among many things, having to compete for listeners with the mighty BBC and commercial rivals like Radio Luxembourg. 
which aimed at large audiences without regard to cultivated minority audiences or the arousing of beneficial curiosity in minds open to attraction. Commercially minded people tell the likes of me to give the people what they want. To which I always reply, do you know all the things the people want? Do all the people know all the things they want? If you don't put the goods in the shop window, how will the shoppers know whether they should try them? The book reviews did sell books. The adaptations sell books and the broadcasting of short stories and poems helps new and often established writers of fiction and verse to hear uh, that their art is welcomed and honoured. And, of course, it leads writers to learn to write for radio and television. That was the voice of Ribor the Farachon. By 1947, he was well established in Radio Erin as Deputy Director. It was a year that came to be known as the Annus Mirabilis, the year in which a full-strength symphony orchestra was established, a light orchestra, and, to his great delight, the Radio Erin players, the Rep. Michal O'Hay recalls the formation of this unique company. It was, for a country of our size, it, it was certainly unique. The BBC had a company, but they only hadn't a, a complete company. They, they mixed a permanent company and a number of professionals. But what Roberto Farrakhan set out to do, and what he did very effectively, was to put um, radio drama and the production and performance of radio drama on a strictly professional basis. Yeah. And uh, he persuaded the Department of Post and Telegraphs, who, I needn't tell you, were very much in control in those years. Yes. And uh, who had uh, absolute control of all broadcasting affairs, both financial and indeed to a large extent artistic. Uh, He persuaded them that that was the only way in which drama and the performing arts in general could be brought uh, uh, made available to listeners as a whole because you hadn't uh, the even the amount of uh, touring companies it was during the war remember and the touring companies were just going to go off the road and uh, drama professional drama didn't tour you could say mcmaster um, did some tours but he uh, advertised, I think, originally for 18 actors and actresses. And I remember well, because I was uh, the first producer appointed uh, with an assistant producer, Seamus Branagh, Galavach, Sulatein, Agus Far, Ian Annover, and Charles Nibley, and the father. But the board who uh, who interviewed. We got hundreds and hundreds of applicants of because of the war, nobody had emigrated. They weren't let go. There, there was a closed down. There was very little activity in the British theatres. The only place that any of them that did tour could go were over uh, with ENSA and do a bit of touring during the war. That was going around to some of the army camps in the north of Ireland. Like Ian Priestley Mitchell did. Exactly. Like These that. are the people. But all these suddenly became available as soon as the war was over and things hadn't really settled back. So I think that at least 400 people entered for that, uh, those 18 vacancies. And we really had, uh, had, uh, had a long and a, 
a hard summer but an enjoyable summer. It was a, a fine summer, I remember well. And Roberto Farragon, Ria Mooney, uh, who was producer at the Abbey, and myself auditioned all those people and um, interviewed them and eventually reached a final selection. And without uh, passing um, any post-hoc judgments, I would say because of the quality of people available that that first rep uh, was, uh, um, a remarkable group of people. So uh, really that was a, a wonderful achievement uh, uh, on Robard's part. Michal O'Hay, former assistant director of radio programmes and director of the Abbey Theatre. And indeed, Michal was the first producer of the rep and with them went on to win the Prix d'Italia. Apart from his work in broadcasting, Bob Farron was very much involved in the social literary scene in Dublin. Ben Kiley remembers how the Palace and Pearl Bars were the meeting places for the literati in the 1940s. Uh, he was strong in conversation, but he was always courteous. And there was a lot of bitter tonguedness going about. Now, a man that I was very friendly with, Patrick Cavanagh, whom I liked, there was a great gentle thing in Paddy, but there was also a certain rough tongued thing in him, you know, too, that came, I think, from Drumney Crossroads, where they sat and knocked the girls off the bicycles. You know, and, but there was no, nothing of that ever in Farron. He would argue like be damned and argue on Thomistic principles and all this sort of thing, but he was always courteous. And I never heard him make an ill remark about another man behind his back. And that always struck me, no more than I did the McManuses, mind you. Although I do admit between Frank and Paddy there was some rough exchange one night about uh, um, I would have said I got to do with something about Elizabeth Bowen. Paddy made some nasty remark about the works of Elizabeth Bowen and McManus said you were a good man to bite the hand that fed you or something like that. But um, McManus could be blunt, but Farron could be blunt, but always very, very courteous. And that was unusual. He was a considerate man, a learned man. Uh, some people might disagree with the form that his learning wished to take. take. He was a great Gaelic scholar. And as I say, he went in for the Thomistic thing. I, for a while, I remember, belonged to a group that were supposed to be reading St. Thomas, but I'm afraid I never got too serious about it because St. Thomas was a bit too much for me. Uh, he seemed too far away. But there he was in the palace bar, holding his place with the best of them, talking poetry and talking philosophy and being civil about it. Ben Kiley. The arrival of the mobile recording unit in 1948 was one of the great events of those years, for it now meant that the microphones were taken out of the studio into the most inaccessible parts of the country, for the recording by people like Sean McRaymwyn, Prentice O'Connellwyn, Norris Davidson and Seamus Ennis of features and music. Shortly afterwards, Kieran McMahon joined the team. He was very interested in traditional music and, of course, very critical of standards. Because uh, what people don't realise, he played a fiddle himself. He never boasted about being great, but he certainly did play. Now, I never heard him play, but he was very, uh, very, very uh, concerned that the traditional music of the country should be recorded and broadcast. And uh, the occasion came, of course, when RT were able to uh, put facilities available, make facilities available for broadcasting outside Dublin, uh, which was done at the end of the 1940s with the, when, at the time when, say, Seamus Ennis came in and Sean McRaymond and Francis O'Connor, and I came later. And uh, he took a great interest in the work 
of the mobile recording unit as far as the Irish language is concerned and the folk music. And I remember uh, putting up the idea around 1962 that uh, I should go to the United States to record the story of Irish traditional music over there, which was largely uh, an unmapped area, except for the records, the, some of the old 78 records that came back from time to time. And uh, there was no hesitation. And going to America at that time to do radio programs about Irish music was a new concept, but he was all behind this. Kiran Wakmahona sums up the many qualities of the man. First of all, he was a great administrator, a most efficient administrator and executive. But uh, he combined that with a great, with a, an imagination. He was a poet. And I think the combination of this literary man who had great ideas, who was a, with a, a philosophical mind, a deep interest in things of the mind and of the widest, uh, with a man of the widest cultural interest, that combined with the administration of a radio station, which had to produce programmes of all types, day in, day out, that he was able to to combine these two and uh, and create a product which I believe was uh, one of the great radio stations and the envy of many other countries that we were able to combine all these elements of, of music and cultural ideas and... Uh, run an efficient station at the same time. May I say to on a wider level, though I wouldn't put myself down as a literary critic, but in a, in a, in a general way, O'Farrakhan, to me, was a link between the new, uh, a new world of literature, poetry and writing, and the older world of Yeats. Yeats I never met. And, uh, but of course he was the, the great figure but now to me for me, well Farrakhan was the link between the Yeatsian period and the post-Yeatsian period and uh, his uh, attitude and his interest in say verse reading I think a lot of, there was a lot of Yeats in that he did believe that verse was not common speech and it shouldn't be read as common speech so he did read verse as heightened speech and we do have some examples of O'Farragon reading his own verse not as many as I would like but they are there fearfully she faltered I was not happy till this one twelve month that started love fearfully she whispered whisper whisper will greenness wither from the leaves of love the dust of the world, I answered her, drifting over the green of the leaves of love, and the sap's bright river sunken when summer ceased, would have withered green leaves of love. But seeing I dared ask God for a wonder, summer to stay and the green not move, quicksilver sap will spring unending, and greenness linger in the leaves of love. Dreamily she hummed, I'll be happy, happy, in each bright twelve month that lengthens love. Dreamily she whispered, 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 the green will linger in the leaves.
Rebordo Farrakhan's poem. His interest in verse-speaking found full expression when he and Austin Clark founded the Dublin Verse-Speaking Society and the Lyric Theatre. The verse-speaking, Dublin Verse-Speaking Society was something that, uh, you know, kept uh, poetry very much to the fore on uh, uh, Radio Erden programmes, but it also um, allowed um, a distinguished poet to have uh, a weekly programme. And Rivardo Farrakhan and Austin Clark had all very, very definite views about what verse speaking was and what it is. Yes. And he certainly uh, wouldn't, or indeed Austin wouldn't, accept much that would be past muster as verse speaking, even by distinguished actors today. No. Because uh, he would uh, be appalled at what he frequently used <laughs> at the sort of um, what was called the grunt and groan school of acting uh, in Shakespeare. Yes, uh, yes. He had no toleration whatsoever of that. And for that reason, he and Clark, who were, if you like, practically um, mesmerised and nearly obsessed by mm. internal assonance and vowel values, they yes. had their own very rigid theories and they got people uh, to... Um, carry out those ideas. They weren't always great actors, but they had great voices. He and Clark formed the Lyric Theatre Company for the express purpose of staging verse plays in Dublin. And they rented the Abbey, usually on Sunday nights. And uh, Robard and Ria Mooney helped them and a great deal of distinguished players. I remember Cyril Cusick played with mm. them. And Maureen, his first wife. They played in, I remember well, uh, the play called The Kiss, um, yes. adapted by Austin Tarkman, the French. Uh, and it was a very fine production of Yeats's The Countess Kathleen, with Etna Dunn in the lead part. Yes. And George Green, a former member of the Rep and still alive, was excellent as the, as the merchant mm. uh, who came to buy souls for gold and uh, I won't mention any more names because I, I, I forget the, uh, um, the, um, the obvious people but what I would like to say about the Lyric Theatre Company is that they did something that the Abbey perhaps should have done and that I think Robard was uh, a bit embarrassed they didn't they staged Yeats's last play in verse The Death of Cucullin mm-hmm. and uh, I think they also revived our stage for the first time, uh, a Yeats play that had been rejected even during his lifetime, The Hen's Egg. But uh, the irony of it all was that there was Robard, the Abbey director, having to sit at a Lyric Theatre production and hear Austin, at the very end, always attack the Abbey directors <laughs> for their neglect of verse and poetry, particularly the verse and poetry of their founder. So... Uh, uh, they did enormous work under the very, very difficult position mm-hmm. because the Abbey had possession for six days of the week mm-hmm. and you were very lucky, whoever was producing like Rhea, if there was not um, two dress rehearsals and two previews before the first night, but any kind of uh, what passed to be a dress rehearsal and a lighting rehearsal on a Sunday morning and you opened on, on Sunday mm-hmm. night. So it was quite an achievement.
Ní hén ina é gur dlag sé bé magóni a gúrsí críolchán ar chrinias ar láura agus cánta, mar léiríans méiv í chónwé piscarsgí. Bén an anrúd bachauchtí nán caidán ibra a chrisaróin. Sésnará caidán crinus crinus cánta, caidán macántacht, caidán Unruches, ma sy'n ein ffocl cart. Sianud na gorfala si gwni gymach peirad efac ar agad gymach si crin gymach si gorrud e gor fiwfa caint fwy gorrud e gymach yn taid y cart dentigod fwy agos gymach yn frotel agos yn chaint agos yn haberty crin agos Tiochnul agus alienta. Yn eich dyfach dyn ar y capog byd o gwrdd ffar lein y fi iawn, ac sy'n ffagraf yn symud ys y chrynys caintys yn. Na gwrhig se, gwrthidio gdo, monorav an chaint fe'n crin na fethoch na smwynt y fe'n crin. Gyma smwynt y mi llacht fyr a agus mae'r sy'n yn chaint mi llacht fyr. Ystorm gyrbwyd antoch dy carfada sy'n cyrnyli a chreiltori. Mae'r sygnoed ag yna tam i dy caintlydynach maen nhw wyl rydyn sylair agos crin tat o gyrdalymolog ar y bobl. Agos ystorm gyrbwyd môr an rydyn cyrrifdyn oga caidan crinys yn tors yn y cyrrwmpa. Agos rydyn yr y bardd y ffarochan y sy'n gan e'n dawd. This was a rich morning. I went out and saw spring watched for. I could feel the time turn round. The trees thought ran through me. Each one said, Spring's coming, that's her sky. The sun rose her way, today. That's her west wind with the quiver in it, like young fire. The trees were thinking, Any moment now she'll reach me and I'll blow my buds aloud for her. I did not hear what water said, and air held peace, spring on her breast. I turned my head, and all mirth smiled from fine eyes. This was a rich morning. Report of Farachoyne's career ran from the 30s to the 70s, and an associate of his through much of that period was Sean McRaymond. Well, Farrakhan uh, was very much in the middle of it all. He, uh, and indeed of other pro, of all the other, all the developments, he, he, um, he did, he could, and he did delegate. But uh, he kept very much aware of what was happening all over the place, and he, he was mightily concerned with standards, with quality. Uh, he could no man better to boil you off for, for any uh, fall from grace in this way. I mean, he was far, far more, as he should have been, far more, more concerned about uh, for, uh, uh, sins against uh, quality than he was against sins against procedure. I mean, he could. He, was not, he, was, uh, he could be a stickler in those things too at times. After all, he had been a, a primary school teacher for some years. But uh, he... Um, 
it was it, it was quality above all I think that concerned him and uh, and quality and uh, and authenticity he he could spot phoniness I think at a, at a, at a long range you know and uh, I must say I found him good to deal at times maddening of course you know I would fight with him I mean we he was he, I regarded him as a stubborn as a mule on many issues and I'm sure he regarded me as an insolent young pup but um, we, you know, we fought a fair bit. But I, but but he always listened really to 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 ideas particularly, and to and to strong uh, opinions strongly held. And then, of course, as one got to know him better, I mean, one one met him on another level. One met him on a convivial level. And of course, he was one of the world's great talkers, and he loved good talk. And uh, you know, we did an awful lot of that over the years too. Um, I, I I would like to use the word that I think he helped us to grow up. I think he helped us to grow up in all sorts of directions. Uh, let us let me th- let me point out one thing. You know, the 1960s are generally regarded as the great watershed, the great years when Ireland suddenly, you know, burst out of her, came out of her shell, came out of her corner, and when when all when freedom uh, uh, emerged, uh, not not the freedom of the flag, but the freedom of the individual. Um, now, um, yeah, also when we discovered all the delights and uh, forbidden pleasures of the great big world. Of course, this is not a rubbish. I mean, certainly a number of things happened in the 60s which had a profound effect on, and on us and which, which speeded up the cultural change which was already already very much happening. Uh, uh, you know, the Vatican Council, the coming of television, you know all that. I mean, there's no, there's no... To us in radio, the 60s was not that exciting because it was the time when we were for the forgotten service, you see. Um, uh, today, all the enthusiasm, and I'm afraid most of the resources, and the resources were plentiful, they went into television, and radio was scurvily treated, scurvily treated in the 60s. It was treated, um, I mean, <coughs> on the level of posts not being filled out of, not just even out of financial uh, necessity, but out of feeling, well, is it necessary to have such a person? Is it necessary? In fact, there were those who literally believed that we, we would see radio gradually phasing itself out, and that it was television for the blind, and, you know, how wrong they were. Now, Farrakhan, of course, always stood up against this. He stood up against and he was one of the great heroes of the Stand Far Radio. The obsessive novelty of television drowned out almost any other subject of conversation in the first years of the 60s, at least in Dublin. As people acquired television sets, so radio listening lessened. But of course radio, for all the brain-drained television, being itself the senior service, pulled itself together and survived, remaking itself. Technical improvements, the transistor, VHF transmission, stereophonic broadcasting, the faster speed of radio news, the greater suitability of radio for music, and the superior dramatic apparatus in radio. All these things ensured that listeners would come back to us. Not so much yet at night, but for most of the day. And I was never a headhunter. Why think that an audience of 10, 20, 30,000 listeners is failure? for a serious radio programme, just because television has 200,000. Quantity is not all. Ribord was a devoted family man, and his wife Maureen and the family shared his great enthusiasm for literature, music and the theatre. His son Ronan 
is literary editor of the Evening Herald. Well, the, the abiding memory, uh, I'm sure for my three sisters and my brother, as well as myself, is uh, growing up in a house full of books, books uh, in, in the living rooms that were literally floor to ceiling. And I think this is bound to have an influence on anyone. And also the fact that he, uh, without ever pushing anything, would um, bring us in books. I remember him coming in with enormous, chunky hardbacks of the Pickwick papers and presenting it to me. Uh, and this was some, slightly before the days of the mass cheap paperback. And these were treasured and we'd spend six months reading it and, and all that. And uh, I think it's bound to rub off on you to some extent at least. Well, he was an avid reader, of course, and read in many languages. Oh, yes, he was a linguist, um, unlike myself, I'm afraid. He, was, he read Latin for pleasure. Uh, he read Latin fluently. He had a little Greek, lots of Italian, French, a little Spanish, a little Portuguese. And he had areas of, areas of quite arcane knowledge in these languages. He also used to develop passions for strange books. He once acquired something like 12 volumes of the British State Trials, which were about uh, three feet tall and six inches deep. And he read these avidly for months with great enthusiasm. Yes. They also read a lot of Irish and English poetry, naturally, which is as great. And, of course, he had a great enthusiasm for the Irish language. Oh, yes, yes, he read and wrote in Irish and yes. all the time. A thing that uh, I often remember about him is his interest in the trade union movement, and there is a reason for that. Oh, yes, his family background, the Farron family background, was very strongly uh, trade union. And one of his uncles, I think John, worked closely with Larkin. And if you recall the famous photograph of Larkin with his arms outstretched, the little man in the bowler hat is almost certainly John Farron. Yes. Standing in front of Larkin. Yeah. Um, his trade unionism was um, genuine and compassionate and lasted well into his radio days, because I remember him telling me that in disputes between senior management and um, less mortal beings, yes. <laughs> yes. beings uh, he was very reluctant and sometimes refused to take, sit on the management side, mm -hmm. because his sympathies were all with the, uh, the people he was working with. Yeah, indeed, that I remember. Mm -hmm. Now, another of his interests was music, indeed, the thing that people don't Yes, he played remember. the violin um, apparently reasonably well, but I only recall seeing him playing it once, one Christmas day when I was maybe seven years old. And uh, he then put the violin away and never played it again because he decided that he was going to either do it extremely well or not at all, and he was writing poetry instead. So he chose literature uh, consciously at that stage. Go forth, my book, and to the eyes that read you, may you bring light and to the hearts that need you, cheering. What of truth is in you, root in a goodly soil, and what's untrue, bud not on any stock, but die away. Professor Gus Martin talks about the impact that Rebordo Farrakhan's poetry had. I think his poetry was, was read widely in his own day by people who expected something specific from poetry. You know people who uh, say poetry should be uplifting, that it should be uh, life-affirming, that it should be wholesome. I think a lot of Irish readers, um, schoolmasters around the country, priests, uh, scholarly literary people of that kind, I think read a great deal of him. 
Uh, the anthology pieces will still stand up. I think he'll always be present in, in any decent Irish anthology of poetry. I think some scholars, some critic, will turn to uh, the great poem, or the very long poem, certainly on Column Kill, and that just awaits critical examination. And I think there could possibly be a revival of interest in him. I think his great quality really was the lyric quality. It's said that, um, that in the Pearl Bar, um, the Northern Ireland poet, Louis McNeese, he's supposed to have said to F.R. Higgins, uh, who was a great friend of Farron's, why does your school not think? And Higgins replied, why does your school not sing? Now, I think Farron belongs to the school that sings very much. He's a lyric poet. He doesn't have the, the elaborate, uh, tortuous complexity that you find in the later Yeats, and that was uh, brought forward by uh, Austin Clarke, who was very much a follower of tradition too, as Yeats had been. Um, I would say that he's not exactly amenable to the temper of the present, of the present generation. But these things always go in waves. Um, a poet dies, he goes into limbo for a while, he's rediscovered, and this happens in mysterious ways. I reckon that uh, Robert Farron will remain a minor poet of genuine distinction, whose experiments, particularly with prosody, will be studied with, I'd say, really great value by some uh, future Irish poets and practitioners of verse. Fana ar varstura ar gara agus ar gumpalach in ar moon chimna. We get used to death easily as we grow older. The first time we saw grey spittle bubble out of a grey soft mouth or eyes take a sterile stare, it wrenched us. It brought discarded doctrines out of the garret of the mind and made them the spirit's shoes. And after, for a while, to hear that the former colleague, the famous man, the childhood's playfellow, the present hero, had died, would deaden the savour of the world like a coated tongue. But we get used to death. We get used to death. There's that young painter. All say they loved him. All matter can't be replaced. Pass resolutions of condolence, write sub-leaders, give away supplements of his self-portraits, send wreaths of lilies and sheaves of immortelles, follow him to church service, follow him to grave. Yet at the specially covened meeting they laugh. After the burying they drink through the whole day, saying, Oh, how he would have liked us to do just so. Never allowing for the change of metal in death, never allowing for the cliffs and the high lands that death drew his feet onto, and the lakes it has made him swim, never allowing for the light upon light upon light. No, certainly his death has left no vacuum in their world. The waters of their preoccupations have swirled together over his sunken head. We get used to death. We get used to death for others easily. 
as we grow older.